0: It's sort of known that the best way to stop fraud is at the front door. Like, just don't open accounts for people who are stealing other people's identities, creating synthetic identities, or who are just here to commit fraud in the first place.
1: Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If you buy, make, or sell anything of value, at some point, you become concerned about fraud. If you're involved with any sort of online venture, fraud is almost certainly one of the biggest risks to your business. And if you're operating in crypto, preventing fraud is likely a full-time job for many people on your team. And the bad guys are only getting more sophisticated. They come at you globally. They have access to all sorts of high-end technology. What's the possible solution? In this episode, I get to speak with Tommy Nicholas, the CEO of Alloy, whose company has been reducing fraud and mitigating identity risk for over 500 of the world's top banks, fintechs, and crypto companies. Tommy explains why he thinks the traditional approach to fraud is broken and how automation and even artificial intelligence can offer a path to success for anti-fraud teams in any industry. We discussed the need for a shift in approach to focus on the person rather than just the transaction and the importance of transparency and accountability by regulators in the industry. Last thing before we jump into our conversation, the Chainalysis Links Conference is coming back to New York City on April 9th and 10th, 2024. I'm thrilled to announce the first of our keynote speakers, Andrea Gacky, who's a director at FinCEN, and Adrian Harris, who's superintendent of the new york department of financial services you can get your tickets now and i would recommend it before the prices go up the link to registration is in the show notes today i am joined by the ceo of alloy tommy nicholas tommy welcome to the program
0: hey Ian. Thanks for having me, excited to be here.
1: I think your company is one of the firms that I never heard of until I got into this world of crypto compliance. And now I have an appreciation for kind of the scale and importance of the the role your technology plays across the FinTech ecosystem. Maybe let's assume the rest of the audience is kind of like me and maybe not as familiar. Where did Alloy come from and kind of catch us up to the present of, of what you all are doing today?
0: It's actually funny that you mentioned crypto compliance because Alloy's main role is not necessarily to work with crypto companies. It's to work with all companies that deal with money of any kind to manage risk for them without impacting their users. So compliance, AML risk, credit risk, and fraud risk in retail financial services. But how we actually started the business was from experiences that we had had working in ACH payment processing, not specifically for but largely for uh, money services businesses, which included crypto companies and realizing that the systems behind the scenes that needed to make sure people were who they said they were, weren't there to commit fraud, weren't buying cryptocurrency to commit money laundering, weren't you know, looking for margin or credit that they couldn't pay back, inclusive of you know, floating payment times to be to be faster that those systems were very hard to build for technical companies that needed to issue bank accounts, transfer payments, sell crypto, whatever it was that touched money on the Internet. And we were surprised to find that while there were a lot of solutions in the space to address parts of the problem, There were no infrastructural level solutions to what we would call decision-making or or full risk management. that's what we set out to build. We're really the operating system and the decision-making layer that integrates the entire ecosystem of, again, AML, compliance, fraud, and credit providers to stitch them together into a cohesive, automated, and effective decision-making apparatus for companies that need to make decisions about their customers in real time in financial services on the internet.
1: That sounds awesome because I can just kind of think about the landscape in my head and I can probably come up with half a dozen companies that do just one piece like KYC. And really within Know Your Customer, they're really doing identity verification at the point of account opening. But that's really just one slice of the problem that you're trying to tackle at Alloy, right? That would be either a plug into your solution or you could potentially roll up a bunch of point solutions that a company is maybe trying to assemble on their own, I'm guessing. Yeah,
0: you got it, man. So the job's to be done are you're applying for a credit card. You know, the jobs to be done are verify the customer is who they say they are, make sure that their their intent is not to commit fraud, but also to assess their credit worthiness and whether they're a money launderer. Across that, you've got to go assemble data and other things from third parties that can do the things I just described. When it comes to credit worthiness, it'd be like the credit bureaus and things like that. When it comes to identity verification, lots of different folks who could do that when it comes to fraud prevention, sanction screening, et cetera, et cetera. So we got to go get the information for them. Then we've got to put together a policy for how do we even say yes or no to each of these things. Then we may have to have a person intervene to do some sort of manual intervention or the customer may need to intervene. Hey, your credit was frozen. We need to tell you that so you can unfreeze your credit and we can restart the process. Hey, we couldn't verify you. We need you to do a step-up authentication. We need to like facilitate that process. So all of that is like very complicated and we facilitate it. Then there's also the behind the scenes work of keeping an audit trail of that, keeping records of that, iterating it over time, back testing to see how you can make improvements, A-B testing and split testing. So you can just think about everything that you might build to facilitate risk decision making on the internet when it needs to be real time and touch your customer. Instead of having to build those systems, you just install one simple API and SDK, and we can control all of that for you, regardless of how you decide to actually go about it in the future, regardless of the providers you decide to use, regardless of how your policy evolves over time, regardless of how many different ways you want to split, regardless of how you want to split on geography or customer type or whatever. I almost think of us like a core or a processor or an operating system for the risk ecosystem, not a particular application or product within the risk ecosystem.
1: I mean, to me, it sounds very much like the first experience I had when someone showed me Stripe. It was like, oh my gosh, you've simplified what was like a stack of paperwork and months to years of developer complexity to integrate something as simple as accepting credit cards down to a really simple API call. And you've made the entire experience pleasant. I feel like you're kind of tackling the next pillar in financial services complexity for companies that are trying to get into the space?
0: I used to resist that analogy because I misunderstood Stripe's business, I actually think, because I would have thought... I would say, no, actually the stripe of KYC would be more like one of our partners, like an underlying provider who does some part of that. Over time, it's become a very good analogy because ultimately they aggregate things a little bit more than we necessarily do because you don't even need to go have anything to do with Visa, MasterCard or Amex, whereas we wouldn't necessarily keep you away. You still can have relationships with those With our underlying partners, like fraud providers and authenticators and all of that. Other than that, the analogy holds because they're going and saying, no need to go do all the crazy connection and certification. No need to figure out how to manage next steps. Oh, by the way, there's a bunch of back office processes that if we don't provide them, you're going to have to build them. Reconciliation, audit trail, manual review, even eventually for them, fraud prevention, et cetera. You know, if you really think about it, like financial services is like ledgering payments and risk. And there's core system for ledgering, so that'd be like the banking cores, like FIS, Jack Henry, Pfizer. They just do the core functions of facilitating deposit holding and lending and a whole bunch of other things. There's payments, that's like Stripe and all sorts of other payment processors. They are not Visa, Amex, et cetera. They are just the facilitators of the whole process. In the risk ecosystem, fraud, credit, and compliance risk, that wasn't really considered a category, but it's like, to me, one-third of financial services. It's like the money you hold, that's the ledger, the way the money moves, that's the payments, and then the risk of all of that. And so I think it was inevitable that as financial services moved online, that gap would become obvious, and it's very obvious to the market now. Even nine years ago, it wasn't necessarily obvious that that category needed to exist, but it definitely does, and that's what we do.
1: It trends along with the digitization of, of everything, right? Like as we get more and more of the back office or infrastructure layer technology brought online, it allows us to iterate much more quickly in the in the retail user land experience. And there's much better products that come out of it. Catching up on some of your marketing content, I, as, as a CMO, kind of enjoy putting a stake in the ground. So you published a blog this summer, your fraud model is broken, was the title. Unpack that for us a little bit. Like what led you to, To to pen this blog? And and what's really the story here about why most people are approaching fraud the wrong way?
0: Well, the real reason that we pen that blog is actually my own frustration. And this is, it's pretty rare that we make a statement that really does come from me. We have a lot of smarter people than me thinking of things all the time, but I've spent a lot of time with our customers, with the technology in the space. Like I've been in the guts of the problem of predicting whether a customer is going to defraud you for a long time. It's something that's was really frustrating me. We were having difficulty explaining a concept to folks who would come to us and say, we're issuing a credit card. We need somebody to figure out if our credit card transactions are fraudulent. And I would constantly try to break this down for people. Just credit cards are just one example, but this is the one that really... There were actually really three things that could happen where the transactions could... Well, first of all, transactions can't be fraudulent because transactions are not sentient. So... The person is the fraudulent one. So let's start with that. And and second of all, there's three things that can happen. Like one, the customer was always going to commit fraud from the beginning and they are who they say they are. The second is that they're not, they signed up with somebody else's identity in some way. There's a bunch of different ways that could happen. That becomes super multifaceted. They stole an identity. They created one from scratch. They tricked somebody into using their identity for them. Million things that could happen. And the third is that the card was stolen and somebody else used it but the person who originally got it was who they said they were. The transaction matters very little other than as a signal for whether the person always intended to commit fraud from the beginning, which is the first two types, and the by far most prominent types of fraud online. You know, so easy to sign up for the thing that you go figure out some way to sign up for it, use somebody else's identity, commit fraud, and then even in the instance where The transaction can be determined to be not the kind of transaction the original cardholder would have normally done and therefore something you should block where the transaction in that sense is pretty important because you're just different type of transaction than this customer usually makes well you're still trying to figure out whether the person changed from one person to another person and so the whole framing of trying to figure out whether these transactions are fraudulent makes like almost literally no sense for the instance where the customer was always intending to defraud you in the first place Because at most, the transaction's details are an enhancement on the information that you really know or should know about the customer, which is really what you're trying to figure out. And even in the instance where the transaction is probably the key point of information because you're trying to figure out using a transaction whether the the card changed hands, any information you can possibly know about how the person changed would be more impactful. And increasingly with digital devices, we have hints that that could have happened.
1: Yeah, this is what I was curious to to dig in on is like... What's the solve here? So if instead of focusing exclusively on the transaction level, We need to focus on the person level. There's a headline in the blog, people steal money. I'm on board with that. Like what's the technical solution to to enable companies to better prevent fraud? What should they be shifting in terms of their approach?
0: So just to even think about why is this not like the dead most obvious thing anybody's ever said, it's actually just rewind and think about who had credit cards and bank accounts just to use those two examples, even 10 years ago, it was people. had opened those accounts and to some extent in person, it's very hard to commit fraud at scale and in person. There's lots of fraud committed in person. I just mean it's hard to do it at the scale that you can commit fraud on the internet in person. So there are people who opened bank accounts in person, most of which weren't fraudulent. And the products they were using were built for people who were operating things largely in person, like swiping at terminals and various stuff like that. So the language that people have just used around fraud as a particular as it relates to like payments makes sense in the context of, well, most of the users of these products started off like as strongly authenticated as you can possibly be because they walked into a branch. And yes, they may have always been intending to commit fraud, but we have credit bureaus and other things to try to figure that out and make it so you can only do that a maximum of one time. And then B, we know like knowing a lot about that person wouldn't tell us a ton Other than we want to know what do they typically do so we can figure out if they do something else because that's probably not them. And that's the whole job to be done in that world. The thing that's changed is two things. One is these products are by and large increasingly not being originated in the sort of most ultra strongly authenticated meat space that you could possibly, you know, that's not where people are getting these products. They're getting products online, a highly manipulatable process, no matter how Strongly, you authenticate them. It's a manipulable process that can be done at scale. So, the fraud, you know, professional fraudsters are coming after you because if they get you, they can get you at scale. And then people are operating these products in various ways on devices, not just with physical cards. So, the technological solution is to start from let's assess the identity of the person and let's use transactions as an input to assess both the intent of that person from day one and the intent of that person today, because they may have changed as people. But we're not going to just use transactional information because we're not just a transactional system. We're going to use identity information, the information we know about how they signed up, where they were, where they live, what devices they use, what their history is, and and various things like that. And that's going to give us a more robust picture.
1: Like, have you actually been able to observe a shift in occurrence of fraud or detection of fraud in your customers that have adjusted their approach and model?
0: What was frustrating for me in trying to make this point originally is even the people who are asking us had already had success with a more entity and person specific approach to fraud, because it's, it's sort of known that the best way to stop fraud is at the front door. Like, just don't open accounts for people who are going to, who are stealing other people's identities, creating synthetic identities or or are just here to commit fraud in the first place. What was frustrating was the assumption that once you've done that, if you got it wrong on the other side, that that information isn't the key information for figuring out if you got it wrong. You did open an account for somebody who committed, intended to commit fraud I still think there's a general orientation in the industry that the only way you would figure that out is like by, I don't know, looking at time series data of transactions and trying to build a model of like what a fraudulent transaction looks like. But we've proven like over and over and over again that it's the merging of those data sets that tells you what you miss during the authentication stage. And that's really the point we're trying to make to people here with that blog.
1: You know, I'd love your organization's produced some data on what's actually going on in the industry. One of the interesting pieces of content we'll link to in the show notes is your state of compliance benchmark report. One of the topics that I hear a lot from the compliance professionals that listen to this show is how much time and effort goes into suspicious activity reports. I mean, this is kind of a hallmark of the industry going back for years. And you put some numbers behind the scale of the number of SARs that are being produced by organization. I think 10,000 SARs on average uh, for small and medium-sized organizations who are dedicating 1 to 24 employees for reviewing and filing those suspicious activity reports. And that escalates for large organizations up to 50,000 SARs per year. Yeah, that's a lot. Which is staggering. You talk a lot about automation as being like, critical to solving this problem? Because I look at that and that's just cost center of compliance inside of a business. You're never going to get resourced allocated correctly to the obvious demand and need that's there. What's the answer here? Because I feel like it ties into this conversation we're just having about fixing the way people think about fraud.
0: They are related. The theory is we're going to track suspicious activity across all financial institutions in the U.S. or globally. And we're going to find trends and we're going to catch bad guys and we're going to do all this stuff. Well, I think there's two things. One is we would love to see, and I think the whole industry would love to see a little bit more accountability from regulators that that's actually happening and it's effective. And the and I think it is a little bit, but like we'd love to, you know, I think it would be good to show more of that or to share more information and data and actually allow more people to be helpful with the information they have from these SARS because filling out even one of these suspicious activity reports manually, I think it's like over a hundred questions. It's a lot. It takes a long time and. It's not just filling out the information, but you have to come up with a narrative and you have to sort of put a lot of stuff together. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that happens. Like you may have to file a continuing activity report if the customer you filed the suspicious activity about, hey, this person might be money laundering. We're not sure. File the report. They continue to do what they're doing. You haven't shut the account down because you're not you're not at it's suspicious, not dispositive yet. Right. And there's even limitations on what you can even do. If you suspect somebody of money laundering, then you have to file a continuing activity report. Oh, when you filled out one of the fields wrong, there's feedback, there's all this other stuff. So it's really, really hard. What we can do to help out and what we do, but also this isn't a pitch. It's more of like what the industry's working on is like, well, how many of those 100 fields can we basically fill from a core system? How many of them are really about the identity of the person or the identity of the persons that are involved in all these transactions? Huge pain point is basically you fill out something wrong with the form and you get feedback. Can we automate that process? Inclusive of if FinCEN gives feedback in an asynchronous process that you couldn't have known in advance because somehow they come up with some problem with what you wrote. Can we assist people in having really ready access to how they would construct the narrative? That's where automation comes in. And that is possible. And I think we are getting to more of a point where... Just writing the na- deciding that the investigation showed money laundering and writing the narrative will be the bulk of the work that needs to be done. And um, I think that can be done through our system if you're combining the identity information and the transactional information in one place, I think we can help with that. And I also look forward to someday, maybe even some of the narrative generation being computer assisted. I think I'm a big skeptic of large language models as having a role in fraud prevention and compliance generally. But that's one area I think they could be killer. I think it would be a great, safe, really good use of large language models to, to summarize a big set of information that a humans already decided what happened with. But goddamn, they got to write a lot of stuff about it. <laughs> I think like a, a GPT type, you know, something like GPT-4 or another large language model could be appropriate for that. But I would say 98% of what needs to happen is actually just getting information from here and putting it there. And that's a lot of what we've been working on automating for our customers. One
1: of the critiques that I hear echoed a lot in the industry is, okay, the entire surveillance apparatus that has kind of probably started in the 70s with the Bank Secrecy Act being passed in the United States and then was extended significantly post 9-11 with the Patriot Act is somehow like theater. Like it doesn't actually serve a real purpose of protecting the United States from terrorists or protecting, you know, consumers. Like it's just... A huge expense and burden on everybody with very little real results. Like, what's your perspective on that as somebody that kind of sits in the industry and works with companies who are, are carrying that burden? Like, it doesn't feel realistic to me, but I'd love your opinion.
0: It's not fully true at all, of course. Yeah. And there's a lot of money laundering that is prevented, there's a lot of people who go to jail for having committed serious financial crime. A lot of what's happening is that they're looking for big fish. They don't want to chase down. They can't chase down or they're not necessarily focused on chasing down every little thing that goes wrong and every bad thing that happens. They're collecting this information so that when something really, really serious is happening, they can like swoop in with insane precision and stop it and then prosec- and prosecute successfully, whether that's with another nation state that they have to make the case to or whether that's in the, the U.S. You know, judicial system. That's the biggest thing that I think people just lose is they're not interested in or capable of prosecuting and litigating every single case of money laundering that exists. They're looking to stop big rings of it all at once so they don't tip their hand because of resources, like all this other stuff. I'll criticize them in like citizens have a right to be and I think have to be informed about the effectiveness of their government and especially a private sector that's being asked this much like... What is asked of the private sector when it comes to money laundering controls in particular? It is a humongous cost burden, et cetera, et cetera. And it has humongous costs on consumers too time, access, et cetera. Like those costs need to be taken into consideration. And I think the absolute minimum the federal government in particular could be doing is providing more transparency on. What is being done? What isn't being done? What can be done? What's being worked on? I'm not saying, hey, let me show you some cases that are in progress so we can screw them up and let some criminals off. But there needs to be more transparency and narrative provided because even industry professionals who work in AML will say, oh, and, you know, it doesn't catch any money laundering, right? Like even you'll even hear that from people who are as educated as they could possibly be on the topic. They're wrong, but they're not totally wrong. And then they're also not wrong for thinking that. And I really think there should be change.
1: Even going back to the topic of SARS, right? I mean, I think it's a burden on industry to produce those reports. Equally, governments consuming them, like actually processing them and yielding some useful insight that allows us to catch a bad guy who's running a terrorist financing ring. Like they're overwhelmed with the amount of of data that's coming inbound. So it's, it's a problem on both sides. Like there's such inefficiency there.
0: And if the government doesn't provide transparency and feedback, it's like if A team at a company doesn't provide transparency and feedback. Sometimes it's because they're geniuses and they're just crushing it. But sometimes it's because they're screwing everything up and they don't know what they're doing and they could use help. That is sometimes what is going on. And, you know, the the American people will lose trust in institutions where they suspect that maybe they're screwing everything up. It comes to light a decade later that they were. And they say, well, everything must be screwed up like that. And it's certainly not the case. I really think this is an area where the narrative will always be, this is a waste of time. This is a waste of money, but we have to do it. And it could be, this is the like most important duty that we have as a private sector is to help with this. We feel really, really good that we helped. And it'd be the last thing I would ask the government to like, that should be how people feel about it. And instead they, you know, people should feel like largely the crime that's being detected by like Filing SARS is like the most non-controversially awful stuff in the world. It's like child trafficking. It's like we should all feel really, really good
1: about. That's right. There's nobody that's in favor of of enabling human trafficking. I mean, you've got a great slide, one of the compliance reports that talks about leading indicators for suspicious activity. Money laundering, tax evasion, identity theft, bribery and corruption, insider trading, human trafficking, terrorist financing. Pretty Pretty bad bad. stuff.
0: (laughs) That great. So we feel like we're Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill and and we could feel like Captain America. It's a miss by the federal government.
1: Let's shift gears a little bit. You touched on it earlier that one of the interesting things that's happened over the last two decades is this transition from where you used to, if you wanted a bank account or credit card, you walked into a bank branch in person with a bunch of identity documentation. Perhaps you already have a relationship with the bank in some capacity. But even if you're a you know new customer, like they go to great lengths to verify your identity. Now you can get a new credit card in under 15 minutes uh, via an internet browser anywhere in the world. It's a pretty straightforward, streamlined, simplified process. What has that done, in your impression, from a threat landscape perspective? Like, who are the threat actors that you see taking advantage of that uh, shift in in the customer onboarding model? And like, where's the money being made if you're the bad guys taking advantage of this?
0: I think the easiest way to explain this is to, to just go ahead and say, let's say that the online 15 minute credit card application actually went to exactly as many lengths to verify the identity as the in-person branch application. That is often not true. Let's just say it is. Why is the threat landscape still changed dramatically? It's just meat space versus bits. It's just, if it turns out that an exploit can be found, let's say you even have to do a video call with somebody to like move your head around and show your ID and like all sorts of different stuff. It doesn't matter how, what you do. It's the fact that if an exploit was found, it could be automated at scale. That's the real problem. And even if it couldn't be automated at scale, maybe it could be mechanical turked at scale. You could recruit a bunch of people to exploit the hole that you find in this process at scale. That might even include tricking people, which it often does, tricking people into opening accounts and then handing them over to you unknowingly and then committing fraud. So there's always an exploit and now it can be committed at scale. That basically creates this unvirtuous cycle, which is exploit found, organization of some kind, whether that's a state actor or a semi-state actor or quite often just a group of people that are just motivated to do this and kind of form a loose affiliation, maybe even on Telegram, maybe in person, whatever it is, go exploit an exploit. And then they do it at a bigger scale. Then they do it at a bigger scale. Now they have a bunch of money. They invest in technology. They build AI to actually try to fool the exploit. Now they have more exploits. They can, now they have more money. Now they're basically like an startup with a billion dollars of funding, you know, to do all this stuff. A combination of, I would say, the exploits that came from pandemic relief and then the exploits that have come from the sort of broad digitization of financial services, inclusive of crypto hacks, uh, that is a subset of the broader digitization of financial services, have left some of these organizations very well funded. Some of them were well funded in the first place because they're state-sponsored actors and states can sponsor quite a bit of funding in my experience. But some of them weren't, and they were just people on the street that are now wildly sophisticated, really, really, really tough actors. And they might also be in countries where we can't necessarily go swoop in and stop them from happening. That's like what makes the threat landscape so complicated. I think what's weird about the U.S. that I still can't totally figure out is – Some of those people are in the United States and they're not being prosecuted. I would like answers to that. Like this is kind of where the transparency comes in. Like if I just even felt like some of the groups of people that we know that are committing fraud in different geographies, were eventually gonna be prosecuted and we're just building our case and we're just gonna have to eat some pain for a little bit, that'd be great. I don't even know if that's true. Like, I just don't know if there's just a non-intervention policy that's come around to some certain types of credit card fraud. But then there's also, I understand it's very complicated to go invade a country to pull somebody out because they're committing fraud.
1: That's incredible. It is interesting, though, your point about how many of these fraud shops have actually become software businesses under themselves. I've spent a bit of time reading about some of these organizations where in some cases they're building software frameworks that allow you to stand up uh, entirely fraudulent website that maybe is a trading platform for crypto or for stocks. And they give you an entire playbook to run to recruit people who think they're you know using a legitimate service, you know, eventually fleeces them of large sums of money, right? We hear about this all the time under the, the banner of pig butchering scams. I didn't appreciate quite how frequently that software is cloned. And so, you know, there's been... Takedowns recently of a couple of these strains, and it's like hundreds or thousands of copies of that trading platform that they've found across you know a variety of domains, variety of different languages, and it, it goes to your point about you know the ability to scale. You can automate anything when we're in uh, out of meatware and into ones and zeros.
0: The curveball that that really threw me was when I started to notice that people were being manipulated by or se- pseudo-manipulated by social media, Telegram, etc. I don't mean to imply at any level that like Facebook, the website, manipulated people into committing fraud. I just mean the connections people are able to form through these are turning into a weapon that I didn't totally grok. And we saw this really bad in 2020 and 2021 of our customers being like, hey, I'm under a fraud attack. Okay, we figured it out. It's it seems to be TikTok. And we're like, with well, TikTok? And there'd be some TikTok. Was like, Here's how you defraud bank X. And then like, it, maybe it didn't say exactly that, but it was effectively, that's what they were doing. That's that, amazing. That sort of thing just shows you like, if there's an exploit, including manipulating other people to do the exploit for you, it'll be found. Yeah. And-
1: not not even it. being shared on the dark web. They wanted to get their view count up, so they're they're pushing it on their TikTok platform. Now we have a
0: we have this whole list of these. We have this big download of all the ones that, or a bunch of the ones that we've seen, so we can show people what to look for, um, what to actually see, and say, "Oh, that's actually a scam." I wish I could send them to my friends, but they're they're a
1: little sensitive. <laughs> different topic. We're a crypto podcast obviously. We're 35 minutes into the conversation. We haven't really talked about crypto at all. But you guys actually do quite a lot of work in the crypto industry. Touch on the scope of that and really how you got into crypto in the first place would be I think a fascinating story.
0: What we do for crypto companies is like fairly simple. If they are money if they're dealing with money at any level, you know, they are concerned about chargebacks, so they're worried about fraud. Money can be deposited and charged back and now the customer has the crypto and Platform doesn't have the money, so they need to prevent that or, um, you know, they need to comply with AML regulations. And so we do the verification as it relates to that and the, you know, transaction monitoring, SAR filing, et cetera. So it's really no different than any other money services business. And we do that with some some pretty interesting companies and would love to, to work with anyone doing interesting that touches money. So We don't do so much in the world of totally crypto to crypto you know, it's still regulated in all these different ways. We're just less involved in that. It's usually when there's some fiat component of it somewhere, either an on-ramp, an exchange, any sort of off-ramp, or, you know, even things like issuing a credit card on top of your crypto uh, rewards, which we, which we worked with people on. How I got into crypto, I mean, actually it was back in the, working in the company that inspired us to, to start Alloy. Like we were doing ACH processing and we realized Bitcoin was getting really hot in 2013. If you look at the price chart doesn't look hot to us now but it felt hot at the time like bitcoin's over $300 what in the world and uh, and then, you know there was there's sort of a bunch of other stuff really interesting things happening the ripple stellar type replace swift pitches kind of going around and doing a lot of interesting stuff there was a lot of you know thoughts about how you might run compute on the blockchain etc and we were just doing a lot of payment processing for those companies and I got pretty interested in it. Actually, my big aha moment about crypto that got me excited about it was actually like a bit of a false moment, which was there was a company called Change Tip, which is that you could tweet somebody, you could post on Reddit, you could post a bunch of different places. Hey, Change Tip, you five a coffee and it would go send the person, it would either send the person $5 worth of Bitcoin or it would DM them, you don't have a change tip account, we've created a Bitcoin address for you and there's $5 worth of Bitcoin in it. And they could only do it because transaction fees were zero, which is what I thought was gonna happen with Bitcoin. And I I got super excited about it because I got pumped about what it would be like to be able to build like a money thing where you could just do it, you know, permissionless dealing with money basically on the internet. Yeah. Um, and then I got excited about transaction speeds and fees, which within a couple of years I had been disabused of the notion that that's what <laughs> we were going to, that's what we were going to actually get from crypto in the short run. There's a lot yeah. of really there. There was going to be a big academic and practical set of things that were going to need to happen before that was our reality. And not speaking to whether I believe that has or hasn't happened, just that it definitely wasn't. By 2015, we knew that wasn't what it was going to be like for.
1: I think you're seeing a lot of people try and, and do that again with Lightning Network, right? right. Like Lightning network starting something
0: like Solana or doing all these different alternative blockchains, like I think it could still it could still happen. It may have even happened, you could say. It definitely wasn't happening in twenty fifteen.
1: Have you ever added up all the tips that you handed out in Bitcoin at the time?
0: and We joke about we joke about it. I, I bought my co-founder a coffee that I think's up to a thousand dollars now. <laughs> <laughs> we and he kept all his Bitcoin. I, I didn't. Um, but he, yeah. he kept all his Bitcoin, which that you know, not some crazy amount, but like even these little amounts add up to like just That's insane. Right. Like in it's insane. Cause yeah. we started well at the time we were really interested in it, Bitcoin was fluctuating between three hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, three hundred dollars, that kind of range. But when we yeah. started messing around, it was way below three hundred dollars. So like these five dollar tips are what is that, 100, 200, 300 kind of like, X? Yeah. Um, there's yeah. they're out there. They're like if you just like Google like Uh, Get on Twitter and look up change tip and Tommy RVA, which is my. uh, (laughs) I mean, they're just. I didn't delete them. They exist. They're
1: out. We're we're gonna have a listener who's gonna go out and pull all those out, and uh, we're gonna get we're gonna get a summary of of everything that you paid out in tips and what it would be worth today.
0: The more interesting project uh, that that got me more into crypto and where I know a lot more about crypto is actually in 2017. Alloy was two years old and was a very small company. And very stressful company to run at the time because we were very small and had very few customers. And probably it seemed fairly likely that we wouldn't make it just because it's small I've talked about this on a bunch of podcasts. It was a really hard time for us. And I'll skip that unless you want me to go into it. But one of the things I started to do to just distract myself on the weekends, I had this sounds, you know, this is sound obvious to a lot of founder people, but I guess it like I had stopped, I tried to stop working on the weekends because it had gotten yeah. too stressful to. Work 24-7 on something that was very uncertain. I went back to working on the weekends, unfortunately, for my wife, um, although I've mostly stopped again <laughs> now, uh, shortly thereafter, because things, you know, going up into to the right. But there, there was this period in 2017 where there wasn't a lot going on at work. We were still grinding our butts off. And I just, I needed something to focus on, on the weekends that was creative, but wasn't work. And I got really, really attracted to the rare Pepe Bitcoin counterparty wallet what they called rare digital art at the time, we would call NFTs, although the people who built the Rare Pepe project project would strongly disagree with that classification. I got super into not the Pepes themselves, but the idea of creating rare digital art And I got so into it that I started messing around with Solidity and basically built like a standard and a framework for creating roughly the equivalent on Ethereum because I thought it was easier to program. And I I did think and still think that was probably the future of the programmable crypto. And then actually my buddy and I, who, who now actually works at Coinbase, decided to start and run a festival for what we called rare digital art at the time. The rare digital art festival. You know, we had the we had the folks from CryptoPunks come, we had the rare Pepe folks come. Crypto Kitties launched between the time we announced the festival and the festival happening. And we had we had this event in New York City where we didn't know if anyone would come. We had about 400 people could come and there was like, you know, standing room only early 2018. There was still no term. I don't think people were saying the term NFT yet. It was like two weeks after that, like NFTs became the thing. thing. Then NFTs weirdly died kind of and didn't go anywhere and then came back in (laughs) during the pandemic. So where I've actually really cut my teeth a lot more on the ground and where I actually know the people who have done interesting work and have had just the most modest impact is actually in the NFT community of all things.
1: Yeah. How, how are you feeling about things now? I mean, it's we're, we're sort of back in that same period that you just described where everybody was talking about NFTs for about a year there. And now, uh, save for maybe like Bitcoin ordinals, the, the activity, at least in terms of trading volumes, is is way, way off the peak.
0: It's similar to how I thought about like Bitcoin transaction fees, et cetera, which is that I got super excited about the transaction fees and the speed. I actually remain excited about whether I actually think this is a good thing or not, like non-state money, you know, plausibly censorship proof. That's actually a really big idea. And I think that's the only idea that matters in Bitcoin. And I think that's like actually a humongous kind of transformational idea, whether it's for me or not is for another discussion. Although I think I am interested in it. Like I kind of disabused myself of a lot of those notions, but held on to this, like it's illegal to create a currency. This other currency exists. Because there's no way to stop it. That's fascinating. I think very important and powerful. And I think probably a force for good in the world. Probably. I have the same with NFTs, which what I hate calling them NFTs. We're going to call them NFTs.
1: We, we can call them rear digital art if you want I to. Think I think rare digital mean. art would
0: have been better. But
1: All right. I'll say NFTs.
0: I got really excited about NFTs for all sorts of things as like representations of music and all these things that people kind of had these ideas about. Like I've come back to the original idea. I should have stuck with the original idea in the first place, which is it's digital art and it's digital trading cards. It's the Joe who was, was really kind of running a lot of the rare Pepe stuff always used to say the token is the art. It's the ownership of the token that is the material thing. It's a collectible and collectibles are not to be diminished in their value like collectibles are crazy important art is to a large extent a collectible item if you can buy it and you can exchange it i still think there's incredibly exciting collectibles that will be built and and, and i do think cryptocurrencies are specifically the only way to do that digitally i i don't think we'll see another way i wouldn't be interested in another way the fact that they're Plausibly decentralized, censorship resistant, that I plausibly actually own it if I have it, is really, really unique. And some of the NFTs I own and really value, like I I still love the Crypto Covens. I have a bunch of them, I think they're the freaking best. I have some of the OG NFT stuff that's best not to talk about. And I still really value them. And I still think that they will be part of culture if cryptocurrency survives, assuming cryptocurrencies survive. I actually think they will kind of be part of culture and there'll be another revival. But I think we'll just, we'll get out of the sort of NFTs are your pass into a Taylor Swift concert, like weird era of NFTs are everything. And that drove me nuts. I think it's just going to be at the NFT is the NFT. The token is the art. Uh, Shout out to Joe. He's the man.
1: I like it. All right. Last question as we wrap up, bringing it back to to your business at Alloy, where's the whole market going and maybe even broader than market, the entire industry of like fraud and compliance. We touched on a lot of the effort that's going in on both sides of industry and government. Any predictions about how we get more effective at stopping the really bad guys, but enabling businesses to do a better job serving their customers and kind of satisfying all the all the various stakeholders along the way. Like, do we see that in the near-term future for for everybody, or is that too optimistic on my part?
0: <laughs> I, I'm a bad person to ask because I think I'm too close to the problem. It's like yeah. if I zoom myself out and say, Tommy, get farther away from the problem and now answer the question. A lot of the nation state issued digital IDs, that's gonna be that's gonna be helpful. That's gonna make a step in the process more secure and more just frictionless. I'm just a lot less confident that there actually is the incentive apparatus to get some of the other things that I think need to happen done. Like I'm not sure without visibility and accountability that some of the things that need to get done will necessarily get done. So I'm less of an optimist about that. I, I do think though, if if I can say a good thing, the explosion of investment in technology to solve these problems, because they kind of simply have to be solved to, in order to do business on the internet. And maybe they always existed, but they became exacerbated. That's been a good thing. I mean, I mean, Like you just think about like what you all do, just an incredibly good thing that required a lot of investment to get good at. And that investment moving from investors into the private sector and companies, the U.S. and Europe are focused focused on these problems in two very different ways. So we will get innovation on two different uh, spectrums. The European market sees fraud and money laundering largely as one thing, financial crime. The United States very focused on blocking and tackling on like meat and potatoes, money laundering, like the things that we talked about earlier. Would love to stop other types of financial crime. Very focused on risk-based approach. You do it the way you think is best. So we will find a lot of ways that are best. European markets tend to be more prescriptive, that has some benefits when you prescribe the right solution, it has some detriments. There are some European markets that have prescribed really bad solutions and they're gonna to need to figure that out. So that that gives me some optimism. There's a lot of money in the space, there's a lot of innovation. Governments are regulating this from a lot of different angles, so we'll see what works and what doesn't. I still just do get worried though, when I think about what it's gonna to take to kind of get the data information and transparency together to really unleash the true innovation of the crowd to stop and spot patterns across the whole ecosystem, which I think could happen if governments were motivated, that seems unlikely in the short term. And I think we're more gonna see user experience improve because there's a lot of innovation there. We to see results on fraud prevention continue to chase after what the fraudsters are doing. Fraudsters are getting a lot of new tools in AI, fraud prevention, companies will have to fight back so I, I see that more as a cat and mouse game. I think user experience is continuing to improve. And I think the ultimate sort of dream of really collaborating to stop money laundering at scale is um, work I'm not even sure is in progress.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for the sobering, sobering assessment of the industry overall. Uh, Tommy, this has been an awesome conversation. Really enjoyed getting to, to meet you and learn about uh, the business at Alloy. Thanks so much.
0: Hey, Ian, it's been awesome, man. Talk to you soon.
1: Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on X or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Last thing before you go, on November 29th, the US Department of Treasury announced that it imposed sanctions on cryptocurrency mixer known as Sinbad.io. The US Federal Bureau of Investigation, in collaboration with the Netherlands, Fiscal Information and Investigation Services, and other multilateral agencies also seized the servers that were running Sinbad.io, taking it fully offline. Sinbad was a money laundering tool used extensively by Lazarus Group, who in turn are a sanctioned state-sponsored group of cyber hackers affiliated with the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. The actions taken by the Treasury Department are in direct response to Sinbad's role in laundering millions of dollars in stolen cryptocurrency, including funds that were stolen in the Harmony, Horizon Bridge, and Axie Infinity hacks. To read the full story, head to the show notes for a link to our blog.